Welcome to the Child Care Business Podcast, brought to you by ProCare Solutions. This podcast is all about giving childcare, preschool, daycare, after school, and other early education professionals a fun and upbeat way to learn about strategies and inspiration you can use to thrive. You'll hear from a variety of childcare thought leaders, including educators, owners, and industry experts on ways to innovate to meet the needs of the children you serve. From practical tips for managing operations to uplifting stories of transformation and triumph, this podcast will be chock full of insights you can use to fully realize the potential of your childcare business. Let's jump in. Welcome everybody to the Childcare Business Podcast. Uh, you know, again, if you've been with us before, my name is Ryan Gwaltney, and I'm really excited to have you join us today. And and look, normally. I would give a quick bio of my guest, and I'm still going to do that. I think maybe here in a minute. But uh, today, you know, I'm talking with um, I'm talking with Emma Tempest. And Emma, I, I want to ask you one quick question that I was reading about you. You are from the UK, from Leeds, is that right? Well, what can you tell us, just so everybody can hear the accent from the word "go" on this episode? What can you tell us for those of us on this side of the pond about Leeds? And how old were you when you moved over here? Wow, that's a lot. Okay, so yes, I am from England. Um, I was born in a town called Huddersfield, which is near Leeds. And then I grew up across the, there's like this big set of, I would say, I think they're technically mountains, but in America, everything's bigger. So just small hills called the Pennines. And I went to um, a place called, a tiny little town called Appleby. But then I moved back to Leeds when I went to university. And Leeds is well can i teach you some phrases i would love it because what i was going to ask you too is like if i'm not mistaken because i have a follow-up question about leeds it's a blue collar area correct like leeds oh yeah is, yeah okay so let's hear some yeah. phrases let's hear some yeah phrases. so if you wanted to so leeds is part of yorkshire and yorkshire people are very proud of where they come from and if you wanted to say hello to someone you'd say hey up hey <laughs> Did I say that right? Did I say that right? You're laughing, so I did not. That was, that was a pretty good shot. So it's like okay. the A out of the word hey. Okay. And then up, as in pointing upwards, like A up. A up. Okay. Oh, that was good. That was nice. Okay. I like A-up. it. All right. I like that. <laughs> what else is there? Let me think. Um, if you wanted to say, how are you? You might say, you're all right. <laughs> Ooh, I'm, I don't even know if I should try to attempt this. Well, we can edit it out. You all right? It's like saying, are you all right? But you just say, y'all right. Y'all right. But actually, really, really thinking about it, if you're in Leeds, you'd say, y'all right. Got it. So if you're from <laughs> other parts of England and you show up in Leeds and don't say the greetings like that, everybody knows you're not oh, from yeah. there. Oh yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. You're from the city. You're like from London, different, <laughs> yes. different breed. So are you an English football fan? Then? And the reason I ask about Leeds, like I am an English football or soccer uh-huh. fan and Leeds United is a team that I really enjoy watching play just their style. And I, I get the impression if people are from there, you almost have to be a fan. Is that accurate or not accurate? I'd, I'd say that's pretty accurate, yeah. I have no longer have an interest in uh, football, but I know when I was little, I did. Um, and, yeah, English people tend to be very um, passionate. proud and passionate about football, yes. 
All right, there we go. So I I needed to get, and I'm going to try to pull out as much of the accent. We'll see if we can have a little fun on this. Like as many leads phraseologies as you can use on this, we'll we'll track them and see how good you can be at that. So tell tell our audience. Like I I have a little bio here that you know our marketing team wrote up. But can you can you give our audience a little sense of of who you are, Emma, and what you do for a living? And then we'll talk a little bit about that and kind of unpack some things. Sure. Yeah. So um, ever since I was a little girl, I always wanted to be a teacher. Like it was just, I loved school. That was it. It was going to happen. So um, I, like I said, I went to university in Leeds and I graduated with my um, early childhood education degree and I went and got a job as a teacher. It was just, that's what I did. Um, and I stayed at that one job for eight years um, working in a what's called a reception class. So it's the first class of school. Um, so it was four and five-year-olds. We were very play-based. We were very child-led, very developmentally appropriate, all those things. Um, and then my husband got a job with um, a company in America. So we moved to Arkansas in 2016. And then from there, I decided to work in some childcare centers and it just became massively clear to me that I needed to share what I knew about how play works in the UK with the whole of America. Everybody <laughs> in America. So, so, Everybody. <laughs> so explain that, like, cause I want to continue to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what you do and what that looks like now, but when you describe how play works in the UK and it being different than America. Like what were your initial like reactions and observations to the difference? Can you explain that yeah. a little bit? And like, I am speaking extremely generally here. Sure. So obviously it's not the same everywhere, but in England, at least that first year of school, quite often you get parents saying things like, Oh, you're going to big school now. And all of a sudden they think that it's going to be work and, worksheets and the teacher stands at the front and teaches while all the children listen and fill themselves up with learning but in England that first year is still within what's called the early years foundation stage which is from birth to five now we know early years goes up to eight but as with the same as America everybody seems to ignore that and is like no we have to start school at five and the thing that I really liked about my job in England was even though we were in the school system, we could still do developmentally appropriate things. And don't get me wrong, there's some things in that curriculum, especially now they recently changed it, um, that are developmentally inappropriate, but it gave us such power and we felt empowered by that to let the children play, to listen to what they needed, to actually just witness and have that honor of watching it unfold. And that's like one of my favorite things about play, the fact that you can watch any child and you will get something out of it just as much as they do. Like if you know what you're looking for and you know how to appreciate all the brain work that's happening when they play, it just lights me up and it just gets me really excited. And when I was in Arkansas, although I saw that in the children, I did not see it in as many of the staff. So the staff could not put those dots together. 
they couldn't see what I could see. Like if a child was, I don't know, throwing toys, they would see it as a behavior issue. Whereas I would see it as, oh, they have a trajectory schema and they want to, you know, explore flight or whatever. And then I would go and provide something that might be a bit safer to throw. And I always felt like um, I had one particular teaching assistant who she would watch me do those things and she'd go, what did you just do? <laughs> that is like, not that what was, we do in Arkansas. Right. In America, she was right? like, yeah. that was magic. And I'm like, no, it's just basic child development. But if you don't know it, then you don't know. Like you don't know what you don't know. And then there's a whole pile of things that you don't even know that you know about. Like it just spirals on. So for me, it became exciting to teach people how to do what I did and how to see children as full human beings. Like they're not just there to be looked after from 6am to 6pm. And although that's a big part of it, you know, we want to keep them alive. There's so much happening in their brains that it really is an honor to witness. And I feel like if you don't feel like that, you're not getting as much out of it that you could. Yeah. So do you think like, um, I like how you say the word honor, like an honor to watch kids actually run and play and observe. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you talk like in your experience and observations. And again, this is going to be a generalization as well, but do you feel like we've tried to take play out of the child's like education, like too early, not only too early, but also just overall, like not allowing enough space for kids just to be able to play. Is that, is that an accurate statement from what you observed? Yeah. 100%. And like you can see that in how kindergarten classes are set up and grade one and grade two. And it's the same in England. Like as soon as they go into what's called year one, when they're five and six, it just it just changes. Like the whole setup changes so that it's listen to the teacher and the teacher is in charge and there's no access to centers. There's no free play. Or if there is, it's often like we used to have in our school golden time on a uh, Friday afternoon. So if you behaved well during the week, you'd get more golden time. And it was just so backwards. I'm like, no, the children who need it, who need that play, that free time the most are the ones who have behavior that adults find complicated. I don't like saying like children that have bad behaviors because I don't think there is such a thing, but um, just trying to, I just, to me, all the science says that play is the way. And I believe that for adults too. So the more opportunities we get to play, just everything in your life gets better. Yeah, I actually, yesterday afternoon, I have two nephews. My kids are older, but two nephews, first grader in preschool. And a couple times a month, my wife watches them. And so they were over yesterday after school and they were just talking about like, they got two recesses plus lunch break. And I was like, that's like the best day ever. You guys got to go to the recess outside twice. And they were talking about how the slides were wet because it just rained. And like, that was obviously the highlight of their day. Like, you know, being able to go out and just run run and play you were you were saying something a minute ago emma about the science supports that like i'm curious i'm sure there's studies that you're referencing but just even like from a like a qualitative standpoint on what you've observed is the risk of not allowing kids to get enough play 
are there outcomes that have been measured and studies that have been, been done about some of like the consequences of that, if that's the right word, if we don't allow kids to experience that at, at young ages? Oh, yeah. I mean, even just from a brain development point of view, like that's why early years does go through to eight years old, um, because your brain is still growing. It's not fully developed till you're 25. And if you think about like, I know what I was like when I was 25. <laughs> um, I'm 45. But, um, my wife still says my brain's not fully <laughs> developed, but that's a different topic. So uh, it's, it's true. Like we expect so much from children. And I think like in terms of studies, if you think about just the pandemic, like how that has shown children are, you know, frustrated and constantly on screens all the time and they don't have access to go out and play like they used to. Um, every time I saw one of the parks that would be like taped off, it was almost like the caution tape at police crime scenes. And it would just break my heart because that's the kind of play that, for some children who live like in a high story apartment, they're not going to get that. They don't have a garden. So those public places are, are the places where they can have that freedom to play and to run around, like you said. Um, but I think even if, well, put, let me put it this way. If you search for our worksheets, um, what's the word I want? Our worksheets, the best way for children to learn you won't find any studies about it because it's not, <laughs> it's just, it's just true. Like there's no, it, it quite, it, it used to really upset me when people would be like, okay, Emma, I get what you're saying, but can you show me a study? Like, I want the proof. I want the research. And I'm like, literally Google it. Like it's, it's a bound, but I just think the society that we live in and things like capitalism, white supremacy, even like the patriarchy has just crushed that innate need that we have to play. And especially when it comes to things like um, No Child Left Behind and other things in America that want to keep pushing our children more and more and more, um, none of it is play-based. And then we wonder why, like not to be dramatic, but then we wonder why we have things like high school shootings. So like, in England, the most violent crime amongst children is stabbings because we don't have access to guns. So the violence is still there, but it's very specific to, I would say, probably gang culture rather than random attacks in a school. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I really do think it's because the children aren't playing enough. They aren't having opportunities to, you know, think for themselves or have an opportunity to feel an emotion and let that be okay because there's constantly somebody coming in to you know like helicopter parents like coming in to save them and oh no we don't want them to feel sad because then something bad will happen and it's like but the feeling the sad is how you learn how to feel it in the future yeah. So do you think maybe you just answered this a moment ago but you know the question on my mind as I hear you talk is like why do you think there was this change, you know, maybe culturally or socially where like we removed play? Because I from what I hear you saying is like, you know, historically, there's been a lot of evidence that supports like let kids go run and they're going to learn and develop as they play just naturally. Like, why do you think that's changed? Is it just I don't want to like answer it for you, but is it like 
like teachers trying to organize and keep structure and feel like having structure is a better way to run a classroom or in your opinion, what you've observed and learned, like, are there reasons that you've developed on why we've changed that? Like why we've taken it away? I think there's two parts to that. And I'm hoping I can remember both of them. So the first part is definitely the capitalism culture of schools essentially being created to house children while parents go to work. Like that was the original point of school. Before school, children were were in their families. They were meeting up with other families and having that hub of children collectively. And then when the Industrial Revolution happened and people realized, oh, well, if children are in school, then we can make workers work longer hours. And then it just flows from there and it just rolls on and rolls on. And if you think about like childcare centers now are open some are open like 24 hours, which just blows my mind. <laughs> like that yeah. was just something I never even thought of. Um, but yeah, like if, and it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I need to go to work to make money to provide for my children. And then I spend that money on them in childcare. And then I have no money to spend on them for vacations or treats or anything like that because I'm spending all my money on childcare. Yeah, that's interesting. And so when you then came to America, started working in early childhood centers, saw the stark difference between, you know, what you had experienced in the UK and obviously what you're really passionate and have strong convictions on in terms of like incorporating play, like what did you do? Because then you obviously made a pivot and decided, hey, I, I, I believe I can help. So walk through a little bit of your career path and like what you did then and, and what you're doing today in terms of trying to support, you know, this topic. Um, I just remembered the second point. Oh, please. <laughs> so we might have to splice that bit together. Um, oh my God, I forgot it again. So the first one was, I asked the question, you know, why do we think we removed play? And first one was like capitalism and, you know, how parents, both parents ended up going to work and it was a place to just keep kids so yeah. they could go work. Number two, if you remember. I do. Um, So the second part of it is I think there's been a big misconception about how to process your feelings. Um, So when children are playing, they have, you know, those big, loud moments of energy, but they also sometimes are very quiet and concentrating. Like it's not one or the other. It's a spectrum of how you're feeling. And I think in terms of the adults in the room, they sometimes forget that, maybe forget's not the right word. They sometimes have feelings about those children that bring up stuff from their own childhood. So for me, I loved school, like I said earlier, and I wanted to recreate that for children. For some people, they might have had some terrible childhood trauma and they want to make sure children never go through that. There's a whole like wide range of reasons why people become educators. And I think for some of them, they don't see the damage that they are potentially doing by responding to children's needs in certain ways. So one of the things that I always like doing in my classroom in England was I would play too, like literally on my personal timetable of the day it would be like Emma's playing time and it was for a reason it was so that I could remember how that felt it's so I could connect with that 
with my inner child, with little Emma, and remember how it feels to really fully get into the flow of something or how it feels when, you know, somebody takes something that I was about to use. Because when you're a grown up, you kind of forget all that because you have been brought up in a society where we share and sharing is caring and it just makes me want to vomit. But like (laughs) the whole point of it is if you're bringing your own drama to the situation, it will always have an effect on the children, partially because their brains aren't developed like ours are yet, but simply because we're humans and we are wired to connect with other human beings. So even if you're not talking to a child, they can still hear what you're saying down the corridor to three other kids. Like it's all going in. And then when we internalize it and grow up with those messages, there's that danger that then we say them out loud to other children. So partially why I shifted from being an educator to being a coach was because I wanted to show people how to how to get in touch with that inner child again and feel the playful things that our children feel now. And then that's where the honor comes from because it becomes so special to witness children doing that. And they can't, I feel like once you feel that, you can't undo it. It's like, oh yeah, I remember now. How that works. And I want I do want to come back because I want to talk about or ask you some questions. Maybe you can provide some tips for our audience about like how how can you look at play and look at it in a new way to be able to understand what's actually happening? Like you, the example you gave earlier about, you know, a child throwing blocks, like some people might observe that and think, oh, it's misbehaving or breaking mm-hmm. a rule. Whereas another maybe more productive way to look at things like that and look at play and to learn from that. But talk about before I have you answer that, like talk about so you left being a teacher. I'd be curious for your coaching business. How did you start it and what came first? And then how did you start working with centers? And then maybe a little bit, I know I'm asking you like four questions at once here, (laughs) but um, what I'll remind you the questions as we go, if you forget is um, so, and what do you do for centers? Like if, if a center said, Hey, I want to ask Emma to come in and help us. Can you kind of walk through what that partnership looks like? Yeah, sure. So um, when I moved to Arkansas, um, I got involved in the, local uh, early childhood affiliate and I would go to there they had like monthly trainings um, and I'd go to those and I'm I'm a long life learner like that's one of my top strengths so I'd always be sat at the front with my hand up going what do you mean by this can you tell me more about that what what does this how does this look in a classroom blah 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 I was that annoying person and being British in Arkansas is like sticking out like a sore thumb so literally, like after every single meeting, at least three people would come up to me and be like, oh my gosh, are you from London? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm from the North. I'm from where Jon Snow comes from in Game of Thrones. Um, but yeah, so I'd start talking to them about like English things. But then I noticed that they'd start then either repeating the question that I'd asked. So they'd say, oh, when you asked this, what did you mean? Or they'd say something like, oh, I never would have thought to have asked that. That was a really good question. And to me, like without sounding really smug, I was just like, well, I just, I don't know. I just asked it. Like to me, it was just, that's what I do. It's like a natural. Curiosity. Yes, exactly. Yes. 
And it just kind of grew from there. So it went to, I ended up being on the board for that local affiliate. And then I worked with the statewide affiliate and got to be on their board too, which I'm still part of both. Um, and for, meant- for for American listeners, the bod is like a board. We would say I'm, oh, I'm, just talking, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having fun with the accent. I love English <laughs> accents. So you're yes, on the board. bod, but it's the board. Okay, I'm tracking. Yes, I'm tracking. Yeah, so I got on the board with, with those two um, associations and started to then deliver my own trainings. So I was taking the questions that people were asking and just making a training and then delivering it. And I started joining like preschool teacher Facebook groups and just commenting when people were asking questions. And it just got to the point where people were like, oh, I really like the way you said that. Or can you tell me more about this topic? So I started writing a blog and then started doing things like um, in-person trainings, like you said, like going to centers and presenting at conferences. Um, and then pandemic hit and I did loads of stuff on Zoom. Um, but yeah, it just it just kind of unfolded. And then as more questions kept coming, I just had this shift where I realized that it's almost not about the content. It's about the mindset of the person asking the question. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started getting into coaching because I was like, if somebody has a question about, let's use the block example, like my, my toddler is throwing blocks all the time. What do I do? You can Google that and get free. Free answers. <laughs> free answers. You can go in a Facebook group and ask for free, you know, get hundreds of people replying. But if you don't make the mindset shift that that isn't a problem, no answer is going to help you. You're just going to try one and then go, oh, it didn't work. And then the next day you might try another and go, oh, it didn't work. Until you have the mindset shift, that's the thing that I like teaching about. It's like going into centers, they think they have a problem. And then I go, nope, that's not the problem. This is the problem. It's different. <laughs> really annoying like that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious. Can you walk through like an example without giving names? But I'm I'm curious about like in terms of your efforts to try to help providers who maybe like you said, they feel like there's a problem they're trying to solve and you come in and realize it's not the problem they think it is. Like you identify that and it becomes more of a focus of like, we have to shift the mindset. What does that exercise look like? Generally speaking for you, when you go in, how do you do that? How do you shift a director and a group of teachers mindsets to see children's what we might say behaviors differently to encourage mm-hmm. play and, and the outcomes that come with that? Well, unlike what my teaching assistant said, I am not magic. <laughs> um, but it's essentially a set of particular coaching questions that really help you think differently because our thoughts in our head. So like the, let's just carry on with the block example. So the block example um, was actually from a real classroom that I helped. And if the staff were thinking, this is a problem, then I would say, well, why is it a problem? Because I would say 99% of people will be like, yeah, it's a problem. (laughs) Like they can't throw them. They might hurt someone. They might get broken. There's a whole bunch of reasons. 
we have rules in place and they're not supposed to do it. So they're breaking yes. the rule. Yes. Yeah. But when you get, when you drill down to the why, it's usually something on a deeper level. And that could be something fairly light, like I have a responsibility for the children not to get hurt because I care about them because not just it's my job, but as a human being, like I care about them. Like that's a, a pretty logical why. But when you go deeper, it could be because when you were four, somebody threw a block at you and it hit your head. Mm. And you just don't remember that until you get coached and it brings it up and you figure out, oh, it's because I feel violated. Like how much out of curiosity when you're working with teachers, how often is that type of stuff, those types of deep things come up? Like, cause my reaction to that would be generally, it would be the first you know example you gave, which mm-hmm. is more like, Hey, I'm responsible for these kids. And I just don't want anybody to get hurt. That's my responsibility. But which is a perfectly, it, like it's a perfectly good reason. Yeah. It's but totally I'm curious in your coaching, like how often it actually becomes a deeper issue that you're having to unpack for teachers or people in the classroom. Yeah. So when there's a slight difference. So when I'm teaching, when I'm just doing like a straight teachable moment, or if I'm doing like, like a webinar or something, I'd probably say we don't get there. Mm-hmm. It's very much like I tell them that it's a thought and that it's an optional thought to have because you always are in control of how, what, how and what you think. The coaching is where we get deeper. And I'd say probably like nine out of 10, I'll get them there. And it takes a lot of trust, especially like, I know your listeners can't see, but I have purple hair and I'm British and I'm a bit kooky. And like people like- The, trife- the trifecta, purple hair, British, yeah. and a, a little bit goofy. That's the trifecta. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, who, who, am I, who am I to hear- your like deepest darkest secrets but the thing about coaching is it's not therapy although I mentioned like going back to when you were far I'm not here to heal your trauma like that is a therapist's job but as a coach I help you look into the future and I help you take a thought that you might have validated within yourself so you might have heard could be a parent a teacher a mentor you might have heard them say something when you were 13 and that got embedded inside you as a rule, as like a general life belief. And I help you see that it is just a thought and thoughts can be changed. And it's not easy. It takes practice, but that's why I have coaching tools to help you do that. Um, But yeah, definitely one of my favorite things when I go to centers is I observe what actually happens during the day um, because that shows me so much. Like before I even teach them anything, just watching how people react to children's. And I know we keep talking about behavior, but even just how long, how many minutes they're allowed to play. And if that play is true play or if it's guided play or if it's adult led activities that rotate, while the other children play like it's it's really interesting to me <laughs> yeah. yeah that's so interesting I mean and when I hear you say like you know I used to help you like coach soccer for many years and young kids and I you know would always say in observing like 
like parents in youth sports, like so often I would be like, the parents are the ones that ruin this. The kids are fine. Like literally if we didn't have referees and parents, the kids would honestly make the fair call. It's like, oh no, that was Mm -hmm. off me or I fouled you. And it was, they could officiate a game on their own. And then we throw in officials and parents and it's like, the adults oftentimes ended up ruining oh the experience. And it, when I hear you talk, I it, it I hear some of that same thread, which is like the parents or the adults and all the structure and all the rules we put in place, at least from your expertise and experience, like oftentimes that's the impediment. That's the problem. Like mm-hmm. if you just let kids go and be kids, they're going to develop properly. But sometimes we put things in their way and actually restrict that. It sounds like, is that how you then kind of started to transition some of your business too to like, not just coaching in the classrooms around kids and play, but it also translates to adults. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think just as a note for the term structure, play has a lot of structure. I think sometimes we, we misspeak when we say, Oh, play is free from structure when you actually watch children play, they plan things out. They negotiate, they have rules, but the difference is all of that emanates from them, not from the grown up. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. And, and those are the things that you're trying to teach, you know, adults and teachers, I guess, in our line of work in our industry to actually be able to see like, mm-hmm. right. Like when you're talking about, and this is what I asked you earlier, like some tips of like, and maybe I don't know if anything comes to mind, Emma, but are there some things that you can leave with our audience and our listeners about, Hey, if this is an area, maybe you feel like you can grow in or that you're struggling with like of observing your classroom in a new way. Are there some really practical things people can do or like little like exercises they can do that you found to work to be able to observe their class differently and allow some of that free play to happen? Yeah. So I have a whole um, training about the adult's role in children's play because quite often people will say to me okay yeah the kids can play but what am I supposed to do like they think that I'm telling them that they should never talk to them and never do anything with them um but that's just not true so for me I mean I can tell you five of the basic things if that's helpful love it yeah I would love to hear um so the first one is and I get they're not really in any order but just so I, this is how I remember, um, is just setting the stage. So instead of being center of the stage, you're the guide on the side. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. Um, so you want to create a physical environment that is a yes environment. So if you have toys that are always in the cupboard, at the closet, I translate for you. Um, if you have to- toys that are always in the closet and the children have to ask to use them, there's a reason why they keep asking because they want to play with them or they're getting something out of them that you might not be seeing because it's not out in the environment all the time. Um, Things like accessibility. So having um, paper ready for the art center, which sounds so obvious, but I have been in at least two places that limited how many pieces of paper a child could use in the art center. And I was just like, I was just flabbergasted (laughs) because to me, it just, and I understand people have budgets. I get, I do get that. But if you're already restricting their creativity, how are they supposed to learn how much is enough? It's the same with glue. Like there's this phrase in America where people say, 
one, what is it? One dot, not a lot. One dot, not a lot. Oh, and that's talking about like kids like only use a little bit of glue. Yeah. And they literally are allowed to use like a dot. And like I've seen um, on like um, websites that sell teacher resources, there'll be like worksheets where children can practice doing one dot of glue. And I, I just, I don't understand that at all. I'm like, use as much glue as you like, because then you know, oh, that's too much. Got it. That's how you learn. And so you're saying flip it on its head, like don't restrict it, but make your classroom open in a way that those things are accessible. Let kids explore. Okay. Yeah. And then the second one is only help when necessary. So quite often um, I'll see teachers dive into situations because they see that someone is about to get upset or they see that, um, you know, that one kid that always takes everything is about to go and take something off somebody else. But like you were saying earlier, children know how to problem solve if they're given the chance to do it. And you can model and pre-teach those skills, like saying, um, I'm not finished using that yet. You can have it when I'm done. Like that's like how many words, like eight or something. It's, it's such a simple phrase, but we're not taught like that. Like when I did my teacher training, I wasn't taught simple phrases like that. Like it's my turn. You can wait five minutes and then I'll let you know when I'm done. Like they can, they can, you can teach them that and they will pick it up so fast, but it's about, it's that dance again of like, you knowing when to, when to interrupt and when to hold back. And a lot of it comes from what you're thinking. So going back to your mindset again, if you're thinking, oh, this is going to explode and it's going to be a huge fight, your nervous system is going to react and you're going to have feelings inside of you that make you want to take action. Whereas if you can calm yourself a little bit, take a deep breath, you can make a more informed response because those kids are only going to have that one opportunity you get to have the opportunity every single time you know those so kids, saying, kids. like the kids are going to learn and figure that out so don't rush to interfere because it's natural for kids in those early stages to yeah. learn and develop by working through those things on their own and i yeah. yeah so don't jump in too soon yeah and you don't want to teach them that they can't solve things because then they can rely become reliant on adult intervention and that's when you get those kids who constantly come up to you and say miss miss emma so and so's done this and it's like well it's almost like you've taught them to do that so i don't know if i don't know if i'm sure you are like i saw once in a kindergarten classroom they had a tattled tail like frog toy that they they kept in the classroom and if somebody had a problem and they went to the teacher and asked for help the teacher would then send them to the frog. It was like a stuffed toy and got them to tell the frog what the problem was. And everybody was like, this is the best idea ever. Now children won't come to me and ask for help. And it's like, why? Why would you want a society where we don't ask each other for help? Yeah, interesting. So so you're saying like, let them work it out. Don't mm-hmm. jump in too soon and create the right balance between allowing them to sort through it and, and seek help when necessary. Yeah. And that's the whole, like, so one of the other things I talk about in this training in particular is empowerment. So being able to, you need to let things go because it's not about you, (laughs) sorry to say, and just creating that 
that yes environment by you thinking, well, how could I do this so that my answer is yes? Because, you know, if some, if a child comes and says to you, you know, can I use this stick to hit this other kid? I'm not going to tell you to say yes, but maybe figure out what the need is, figure out how can I help that child so that I can give them a yes answer. And it's all about trust and risk and, you know, but you can't do any of that if, you, if your mindset isn't right. Yeah, it goes back to that mindset piece. Okay, I like that. That's two. Oh, that's three. That was three. Okay. <laughs> so, so empower, set the stage, help, help. Um, take notes, take notes, stand aside for a little bit and watch what's happening in the room and just take observed notes of what is actually happening, not what you think is happening. But, and when you say, so when you're coaching your clients, when you say take notes, you're literally talking about physically writing down notes as an exercise that you found out. Yes. And obviously like I do talk about documentation, like taking photos and videos, but actually sitting down and having a piece of paper and a pen, not only like connects that mind body connection, but it's something that I see a lot of teachers, they don't do. They see something happening and they instantly have a thought about it. And then they react to it because- your thoughts fuel your feelings that drive your actions. Whereas if you just write down what happened as in the facts, like the actual circumstances. So uh, Johnny threw a block at Sally, that would be a fact. But most people would go, oh no, Johnny threw a block at Sally and it hurt her. And he's, you know, really annoying. I can't believe he did that. I, uh, and it just, it's full of thoughts. It's just full of judgment. It's, it doesn't have any curiosity, like we were saying earlier. When you write just the facts down, then you can separate that from how you think about it. And then that helps you build that curiosity muscle. Do you, do you, when you coach people just to double click on that item a little bit, when, after people take notes and like, maybe, Hey, every day this week, just write down factual observations of what you see in their class. Is there, is there things that you encourage your, your clients to do with those notes in terms of going back and looking at them and looking for patterns and how to analyze them? Anything you can add to that, like a practice of how to look at those notes and what to be looking for? Yeah, so there's there's loads of things that you can actually do with them. Um, simple things like how how was that child feeling when they first walked in the door? Mm. You know, did the parents say, "Oh, we've had a hard morning," or were they re- really really excited to come in? Because sometimes what happens at home has a massive influence on what happens during the day, but you might not know what that thing is. And I know some some staff that I used to work with, they would get really frustrated because they'd be like, but I need to know what happened. Because if I know what happened, then I can treat that child in a certain way. Whereas as we know from like trauma-informed learning, you should just treat everybody that way. Like everybody should be given a second chance. Everybody should be treated as if they matter and that you care about them no matter what behavior they exhibit. Because you're that... You have to be that that person in the room who they can trust. And like I said earlier, you're literally keeping them alive all day, which is massive when you think about it. Like, that's huge. And I think play is such a, a perfect way to 
build that trust with somebody. So when you're writing a note about someone's um, actions or behaviours or, you know, it could be something something they're really engaged with or, you know, it doesn't have to just be the bad behaviour. hate that word, but I, just for the sake of this. It can just be, you know, writing an observation about a really nice playful moment that you saw between three girls out on the playground. But it's all... It's like, what are you making that mean? That's one of my favorite questions. So what are you making it mean? So if these three girls are getting along really well and they're playing with this thing outside, say the mud kitchen, what are you making that mean? Are you making it mean that they're just smart, clever girls, which is a great patriarchy line? Mm -hmm. Um, Or are you making it mean that, oh, we need to spend more time outside? We need to get more sieves for the mud kitchen um we need to maybe listen into their conversation and record what they're actually saying like maybe they're interested in something nothing to do with mud you know maybe they're role-playing baking cookies with grandma maybe we need to get some grandmas in it's like there's that surface level of what you see and then it's what you think about it i like it and and then what about maybe as a i I know we're running short on time but maybe as a as a Maybe a final question, maybe not, if I want to ask another one or, or expand on it. But, but what about for teachers who say, like, how do I know if it's working? So, like, let's say that you go in and coach and, you know, teachers, like, you're able, you know, to get them to that spot where they recognize, like, oh, this is super important and my mindset has changed and I want to observe my classroom in different ways. Um you know, I mean, obviously, maybe it's a self-explanatory question because I know if it's working, if I start to see behavior, what you don't like to call behaviors, but I start to see that yeah. change in development. But are there other things like that you can share? Like, hey, if you if you try these things, how do you know if they're working? How do you know to keep leaning into them versus, hey, it's not working and I need to try something else? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, again, it's twofold. So one way of it working is that obviously the children get along with each other. They are free to play and explore their own interests. The, the behaviors do minimize because they are getting on better. Um, and I just think the other way, the second, like the twofold part is how you feel. So I talk a lot about self-care and well-being, and nine times out of 10, the teachers who I talk to who are stressed out have less play in their classrooms. Hmm. Like it's a, it's a direct correlation. Um, the ones who are the happiest have children who play for longer periods of time, but they also take that time for themselves to play. Um, and it sounds really like flippant, but play is just so powerful and not just for children. So I, I, my certification in coaching is with positive psychology and the pillars that positive psychology covers. So I talked earlier about looking to the future. So traditional psychology looks to your past, looks mm-hmm. to your childhood, looks to your trauma. Positive psychology looks at what you can actually make happen for the future. And the, the five pillars are positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And then they sometimes add on health as well, because that's a big, huge thing. Mm -hmm. And the more I studied it, the more it just lines up with the characteristics of play, like scarily so. 
So when when children are playing, those and things they, happen. Yeah, the same things happen. They explore how they feel. All, all the feelings, not just the nice, happy ones, not just the, I, I call them comfortable and uncomfortable feelings rather than positive or negative, but they, they build relationships. They make meaning out of what they do. You know, when they're in the home corner cooking dinner, that's because they've seen that in their house. They're making meaning out of their life. Um, mm. They talk about accomplishments. When they build an amazing tower in the block center, they celebrate and their friends clap and cheer and they have, I know at least with some of the adults I've worked with, they have adults celebrating too, going, wow, look what you built. That's incredible. I like how you did this. Or look at this piece and how that fits together this way. They, you were talking about running around. They move all the time. How many adults, how long have we been sat here talking and we haven't No kidding. (laughs) And little kids are not designed to go sit in a chair and not move. And this is, that brings up, I know I said it was last question, but I also gave myself an out. So I have maybe two more quick ones. I probably should have asked this at the very beginning, but in terms of play, because that's a big word, right? Like we talk about play, but is there a definition that you use? Like you talked earlier about, you know, sometimes classrooms feel like, or teachers feel like they're letting kids play when really they're not because there's all this structure like is there a go-to definition of like how you define play because we use that word a lot or is that an unfair question is that tough to answer no that's that's totally fair um so my like specific definition is anything that a child wants to do on their own agenda um because usually the thing that stops play is an adult. <laughs> like we were saying earlier about the parents and like, I can't even tell you the amount of times when I used to be a nanny and I used to go to public parks and I <laughs> just, I'd have to like change my own mindset because I'd constantly hear parents and other nannies stopping play. Don't <laughs> but, do that, um, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so hard not to just be like, can I just teach you everything I know about child development, please? <laughs> Because you're um, going against that. So I like that. Anything a child, anything a child wants to do out of their own curiosity and mm-hmm. instincts is yeah, they're, I mean, they're naturally gonna play. That's what they'll yeah. do. They're not gonna sit down and naturally like um work on worksheet. They're gonna go play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a psychologist called Peter Gray who has a great definition of play. Um he has five separate characteristics, and they're the things that line up with positive psychology really good. Um, so basically play is imaginative, um, players are active and alert, but not stressed play is self-chosen. And most importantly, I think anyway, players are free to quit at any time. So that, that might shift some bones (laughs) in people listening, um, during play, the means are valued more than the ends. So that's kind of like your whole loose parts. Um, just playing with things rather than building it for a certain reason. Um, And that play, like I said earlier, has structure and has rules, but they come from the players. So when you hear all those things, if you think as an adult, as an adult, you want to disengage with real life. You want to watch Netflix and eat popcorn and (laughs) go on holiday. You know, you want to have that break from real life. If you think about when you're most active and not stressed, it's when you're engaged with something. It's when you're in that deep state of flow. 
relationships. We're wired to connect with each other. Like you and I have this connection now that will be forever in our history, but we're free to quit any time. Like I could just log off now. Yeah, <laughs> you could. Yeah, at any point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like the whole accomplishments, you know, we have goals, we have things we want to achieve in life. And then what was the other one? Meaning, in terms of meaning, how often do we say like, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What purpose do I have? It just it just lines up so perfectly with play. It just makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's obviously you, um, I mean, it's it's always fun to talk with people that have a passion for what they do, like in a, in a conviction like this is going to, you know, change the world sounds you oh, know, yeah. maybe overly dramatic, but it's true. Wow. Like, you know, it's going so true. Youngest ages. So it's if people- so true wanted to i want to be respectful of your time because we were joking before we started recording emma how like everybody was running from their last meeting and is probably running to their next so i know you're busy and we appreciate you carving time if anybody in our audience wants to find you and learn more about this topic or explore the types of things that you offer and some of your expertise can you share with our audience how they can find you and and uh, learn a little bit more about the things that you do yep so i'm on facebook and instagram as the play coach and my website is makeyourownrainbows.com. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, that's where I am. That's where you are. So it's The Play Coach on Instagram yeah. or Facebook, Emma Tempest. Mm-hmm. You can also find her website at makeyourownrainbows.com. Is that correct? Yep. And if you show up, you introduce yourself to Emma and you say A up, or something similar, then she's going to know that you were, you heard her on our podcast and maybe there'll be some kind of special deal. She'll give you. That's I, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We it actually is super fun content. Emma. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in, you know, the importance of that myself, like of play and just letting kids develop. So it resonates with me. I think it'll resonate with our audience and hopefully help some people out. But um, I hope some people reach out to you as well. And then maybe the other question I was going to ask you, we don't have time because it's, <laughs> it's probably its own episode on its own, but like the impact of technology on this topic and how that's changed the way kids play both maybe for the positive, but how it's, you know, also impacted. So maybe that's session two someday, we'll circle back and have you back, okay? We'll, we'll oh, leave that there awesome. as like a, yeah, as a teaser. So really appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Child Care Business Podcast. To get more insights on ways to succeed in your childcare business, make sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you want even more childcare business tips, tricks, and strategies, head over to our resource center at ProCareSoftware.com. Until next time.